Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. There's a story that a solo is making preparations to cross back over from Greece to Italy to bring, if it was necessary, all the fury of vengeance and war on his own country, that a strange apparition came to him. He was mustering his 1,200-ship fleet at Apollonia, a Greek port city in Epirus, just across the Adriatic Sea from his destination. And in a free moment, he was visiting a nearby shrine. It was a whole sacred precinct, in fact, that was dedicated to the nymphs, the river goddesses, and the guardian spirits of the forest. And this particular Nymphaeum of Apollonia, as it was called, it was a beautiful dell of green meadows from which issued scattered streams of perpetually flowing fire. These flames were fueled by local petroleum deposits, slowly oozing out of the ground. And here, it is said, a sleeping satyr was caught by the locals, such a one as the sculptors and painters represent according to Plutarch, and it was brought to Sulla. Now, a satyr is a strange mythical creature, half man, half goat. Satyrs were famous for their mischievous playfulness. They're always mad with passion, chasing after nymphs in the forest. And they're musical too, even dramatic. They're dear to the god Dionysus, the god of the theater, the god of split identities, All of these qualities in the satyr are ones that a man of Sulla's talents and inclinations could appreciate. Satyrs are charming and funny, but also wilder, closer to a state of nature. They operate by a different rule book. And Sulla, it is said, brought many interpreters to this odd creature to try to communicate with him, asking him who he was, what he was doing at the Nymphaeum, But when, at last, the creature uttered nothing intelligible but emitted a rough cry that was something between the neighing of a horse and the bleeding of a goat, Sulla was suddenly struck with an uneasy feeling of horror and ordered this disgusting thing banished from his sight. Well, if it happened, it was a wonder. But was it an omen? If so, of what? Well, Sulla could hardly be bothered with those kind of questions for too long. With so many positive signs coming in from the heavens lately, promising him victory and divine support for his cause, he hardly needed another confirmation of what he already knew. And so, like the Greek king Pyrrhus 200 years earlier, Sulla boarded his soldiers in transports to set sail for the boot of Italy to bring peace or war, whichever the authorities in Rome preferred. I'm Alex Petkus, and you're listening to The Cost of Glory, 
where we retell the lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes in order to sharpen our minds and characters and maybe inject a little heroism into our own lives for action in the present. This is part three of three of the life of Sulla. When Sulla crossed the Adriatic Sea in the spring of 83 BC, the first Roman general ever to invade Italy with a hostile force, he was on a mission. He didn't just want to be restored to his home city or merely escape with his life and his soldiers' lives, especially if the cost was some humiliating self-abasement or surrender. He intended to punish the crimes and injustices of the men controlling Rome now, the odds were stacked heavily against him. His opponents have amassed an army of some 100,000 men to oppose him. He only has about 40,000 at the highest estimations. And what's more, the current government in Rome has been ruling for almost four years, and it's acquired a stability and a legitimacy in the eyes of the Roman citizens and the communities of Italy, and even to members of the Senate, who only went along grudgingly with Senna and Marius's coup. These people aren't really excited about the idea of the bucket being shaken once again. One of Sulla's big challenges here is that his soldiers all have a pretty good idea of all this too. They're vastly outnumbered and most of them are not excited about the prospect of waging an outright war of pitched battles against their fellow citizens. At least 10,000 of Sulla's soldiers only recently were basically fighting for the other side under Flaccus and Fimbria in Asia. And who are the good guys now, anyway? There's a real danger that as soon as his troops disembark in Italy, they'll quietly slip out of sight and disperse to their homes and villages. But one fluke event happened as Sulla was preparing to return that worked hugely in his favor. So much so that some historians have suspected Sulla somehow engineered it, although there's not an ounce of proof. But... As his rival Cinna was busy mustering and training up the new consular armies, he was out in the field and getting ready to give a speech to some rowdy and mutinous troops. You see, Cinna had this plan that he was going to ship off the fresh new anti-Sulla recruits to Dalmatia, which is modern Croatia, to fight some barbarous tribes there, score some quick, easy victories, and then return home a little more battle-hardened. But as he was sending them out, one of the transport ships sank in a storm. And now the other troops don't want to risk the trip across the Adriatic. And as he's pushing his way through the crowd at this assembly of soldiers, he's moving towards the speaker's tribunal and his bodyguards encounter some stubborn soldiers and they, they rough him up a little bit to shake them out of the way. Well, a fight breaks out and Cinna the very figurehead of the anti-Sulla resistance, gets stabbed to death. Well, whatever human was ultimately responsible for this incredible twist of fate, it was clearly a vote of confidence from the gods. Well then, as Sulla is about to cross the sea, his soldiers sense his distress, and they offered to contribute some of their own money to fund his rebel military campaign. But in response, Sulla ostentatiously refuses. He doesn't want their money, just their hearts. And they shout in praise. And at that point, he took the opportunity to give them a speech, to encourage them, to remind them of why they were doing what they were doing. And we don't know exactly what he said, but 
He must have pointed out to them that they were not simply his cronies fighting in some faction squabble between quarreling aristocrats. Look at all the refugee senators in his camp. These men and this army were the last hope of the legitimate Roman government. They were on a mission to exact justice from lawless men who subverted the Constitution, who laid siege to the city of Rome, who murdered many innocent people. And then, when their own citizen army was in the east fighting the barbarian for the safety and dignity of the Roman people against incredible odds, the regime cut off support for their own soldiers and sent an army to destroy them and their commander. It was only because of the mercy of the gods that any of Sulla's troops were still alive after that. And now, after so much warring over the past few years, sure, the soldiers wanted peace. It was understandable. Did Sulla not want peace too? Of course. But the current regime represented mob rule. As long as demagogues like Sulpicius and Marius and Cinna can impose their will by force, is Rome ever really going to be at peace? If they are allowed to rule unopposed, will this not simply reinforce the pattern? Will it not turn their brash coup into a precedent for future abuses? No, it can't be allowed. Sulla and his army are fighting for the very salvation of the Roman state, preserving its stability for future generations. And then his soldiers should consider the other consequences, the personal consequences, if they neglect to fight. Now that they have been serving, under someone the regime is calling the enemy of the state, what kind of honors should they expect from the current rulers of Rome? Do they think that they'll be given a triumph in laurels now for their victories over Mithridates, for saving the Roman East? Or should they not rather look forward to being hounded in the civil courts for the rest of their lives on manufactured charges, slighted on public occasions, cut out of deals and responsibilities, blocked from winning offices by the current establishment, murmured against here and there throughout the towns, a death by a thousand cuts? Get ready to feel the prick of shame for the rest of your lives every time you hear someone say, oh, that's one of Sulla's men. Well, whatever Sulla said to them in that speech, it helped buy him just enough loyalty to get to the next stage with his army intact. He arrives at the heel of Italy in the southeast and establishes a beachhead at full strength. And word soon comes from Rome that the Senate has just given the consuls the power to do anything and everything necessary to preserve the Republic. And that's Roman for basically declaring martial law. So, they shouldn't be expecting any peace embassies anytime soon. The rebels begin their march to face the regime forces in central Italy. Now, along their route, Sulla gives strict orders that the soldiers are to treat the countryside of Italy, Calabria, Apulia, Campania, as if it were Sulla's own backyard. No plundering, no damage to crops, no shaking down of locals. And the inhabitants of these regions are to be left with the impression that Sulla is not a champion of war, but an establisher of peace. And this was good for the troops' morale. It made them feel like the good guys— it also helped that they were already loaded up to their ears with treasures from Asia and they could hardly carry more stuff. But then another big boost of morale comes when Sulla is joined by two Roman generals who defect from the regime. 
The first is a relative of his by marriage, Metellus Pius. And this is one of the most distinguished optimates of his day. Metellus quietly withdrew with his army to Africa earlier when Cinna took over the city. And his arrival is a huge vote of confidence for Sulla's cause. He brings thousands of soldiers with him. And this Metellus, by the way, is the one who later went on to battle Sertorius in Spain. And he's the son of Metellus Numidicus, which is the character that features so prominently in the life of Marius. And the other early joiner to Sulla's cause is a young Marcus Licinius Crassus. Crassus later went on to become the richest man in Rome and one of the members of the first triumvirate with Pompey and Caesar. But at this point, he's just a rather precocious youth in his mid-twenties. Crassus brings his own army too, including many of his father's supporters. His father was a consul, and he and Crassus's brother were executed for opposing Marius and Cinna. So young Crassus has got a very personal stake in this conflict too. And more on Crassus when we get to his Plutarch biography. But even with these reinforcements, Sulla is still outnumbered, outfinanced, and widely seen as an illegitimate rebel. So he needs to score a quick victory, or else his soldiers are going to start fading away. Can he pull it off? Well, the first opportunity comes in Campania, which is a wide volcanic plain in south-central Italy. It's north of the region of modern-day Naples. And at this point, the game board of Italy is as follows. Sulla's got his one army, and then the regime has three major armies, each nearly the size of his. One is in the north, commanded by Carbo, the former consul, Cinna's right-hand man. Carbo is the senior figurehead in the regime now, by the way, now that Cinna is dead. And then there are two other armies in south-central Italy, near Sulla, commanded by the two consuls for the year. These are Norbanus and a certain Lucius Scipio. Neither of these guys really have stellar war records. Scipio in particular is a pretty pale reflection of his glorious ancestors. But they've got a lot of muscle with them. The two consuls are trying to rendezvous in northern Campania to combine their armies and face Sulla's army together. But before Norbanus can join up with his colleague, Sulla surprises him at the foot of Mount Tifata near Capua. And the details aren't clear, but Sulla ends up attacking Norbanus and winning decisively. And there's a rout, and he chases Norbanus into the walls of the city of Capua. And at the end of the day, Sulla's army has killed 7,000 and taken another 6,000 prisoner. His losses, so he reported, are 124. And here, according to the principles of ancient warfare, in the case of a decisive victory, that's not actually implausible since most of the casualties occur when an army breaks ranks and flees. And that's what happened with these mostly relatively green troops that Norbanus was fighting with. Well, this was disastrous for the regime cause and a huge swing in Sulla's favor. But what happened next was even more promising. At this point, Scipio, the other consul, is nearby with his army. And with Norbanus walled up in the city, Sulla's got Scipio isolated. Sulla knows Scipio is not the most decisive man. And he also knows that Scipio's troops, mostly fresh new recruits, are probably shaking in their knees at the thought of a more or less equal fight with Sulla's deadly veterans. So he sees an opportunity. He extends an olive branch and invites Scipio for a parley. 
Now, in Scipio's camp is a lieutenant of Praetorian rank named Sertorius. Sertorius is forcefully opposed to opening up negotiations. He cites the example of Fimbria. He thinks Sulla is using this parley as a pretext. Sulla knows how to get troops to switch sides. But Scipio dismisses this as a ludicrous conspiracy theory. He sends this Sertorius guy off with a few cohorts to go update Norbanus about what's going on. And so the two opposing generals call the gods as witnesses and swear oaths of peace. They exchange hostages and they open up negotiations. And here's how Plutarch describes what happened next. Quote, Scipio accepted the offer and several meetings were held, but Sulla continually interposed some pretext for gaining time and gradually corrupted Scipio's soldiers by means of his own soldiers who were practiced in deceit and every kind of trickery like their general himself. For they entered the camp of their enemies, mingled freely with them, and gradually won them over to Sulla's cause, some at once with money, others with promises, and others still with persuasive flatteries. End quote. And meanwhile, however, Sertorius goes rogue. He surrounds and captures a nearby town that had declared for Sulla. He's trying to force Scipio's hand to break up these negotiations and prevent the defection that he sees coming. Ah, with what great pleasure must Sulla have received this news? Sertorius has just broken the truce, and Scipio, as commanding officer, is responsible. Scipio, therefore, is an oath-breaker. And this event just confirmed all the suspicions that his own soldiers were sowing in the minds of Scipio's soldiers. The regime is an unprincipled, duplicitous, self-interested band of robbers. And so, at a coordinated moment, Sulla's soldiers come up near Scipio's camp, and they shout out a secret greeting. And Scipio's soldiers call back with their secret password in response. And then, in a great sudden motion, the entire army leaves Scipio and his son alone in their tent, abandoned. And Sulla strolls in and captures Scipio, dazed and confused. He invites Scipio to join his cause. Scipio declines. And Sulla, thinking maybe now that Scipio is himself more a liability than an asset to the regime at this point, he allows the man to go in peace. It was on this occasion that Carbo is supposed to have exclaimed when he heard the news that Sulla is half lion and half fox, and it is the fox that is more dangerous. Well, from this short and successful cat and mouse campaign, on top of a huge shift in manpower, because of Sertorius's actions, Sulla now has a clear propaganda victory that he can point to again and again, how he gave the regime a chance to end this all peacefully. And what did they do? Abuse the peace to try to gain a little tactical advantage, insulting the gods they swore their oaths by. And he did flog that line all the way to the end, probably because of what ended up happening with Sertorius. And that's a story that we've already told elsewhere. Speaking of propaganda moments, it was around this time that the Capitoline Hill in Rome burned. Of all the seven hills of the city of Rome, 
the capital line is the holiest, the most symbolically significant. It's where the grand temple of Jupiter was. It's the ancient citadel, the Romans' equivalent of the Acropolis. It's the hearth, the foundation. And after the event, it was assumed that the cause was arson. There's much finger-pointing. Was it Carbo's doing, the consuls, agents of Sulla? And no convincing evidence ever came forth. But somehow a fire started. It ripped through the sacred buildings on the hill, destroying monuments and memories and buildings that stood since the ancient days of King Numa and Servius Tullius, monuments that had survived the Gallic sack of Rome in 390 BC, including the Temple of Jupiter. They were all burned to the ground. It was as if the gods were confirming that they had abandoned Rome's current regime. That at least is the interpretation that Sulla favors, and he quickly circulates stories to that effect, adding that, in fact, he was warned about the event, by soothsayers beforehand. Soon, Sulla is joined by another man who went on to become one of the great figures in Roman history. It's the 22-year-old Gnaeus Pompeius, known to later history as Pompey the Great, later the friend and then famed opponent of Julius Caesar. Pompey brings with him an entire legion, around 5,000 men. How does a 22-year-old get a legion under his command? Well, the short story is, his father was a consul a few years earlier, but died an untimely death, possibly struck by lightning, and in the chaos of the social war, the financial crisis, and the coup of Marius and Cinna, young Pompey managed to convince his father's troops to transfer their allegiance to himself and stay mobilized in eastern Italy in Picenum, which is where Pompey could support them from his sprawling ancestral estates along the Adriatic coast. So now, at this crucial juncture, Pompey Jr., the boy wonder, he throws his lot in with Sulla. And these men that he's showing up with at Sulla's camp are battle-hardened soldiers, his father's veterans who have fought in the social wars. And on their way to join with Sulla, they also even had to fight off a force sent by Carbo to destroy them. And Sulla then, with his highly developed sense for reading the character and the desires of ambitious individuals, when Pompey approaches his camp, Sulla rides out to meet him personally, and he even dismounts from his horse. That's a pretty extreme sign of respect for a former consul to show a 22-year-old. But Sulla wanted to secure Pompey's loyalty firmly. Ten years earlier, the idea of a boy like this commanding a Roman legion would have been unthinkable. But now, in the circumstances of a civil war, it seems like just about anything is possible— and Sulla is in fact credited as the man who later gave Pompey his famous epithet first, Magnus the Great. More on these matters, though, in Pompey's biography. And now the war had advanced beyond opening strikes and feints into full-volume bloody fury. How many Roman lives would it take to settle this fight? After a harsh winter, Sulla sends Metellus and Pompey up north to push deeper into central and eastern Italy, and he himself moves west toward Rome. And near the city of Praeneste, modern Palestrina, less than a day's journey away from Rome and the nearby hills, late in the afternoon with his troops tired, Sulla is confronted and attacked by a regime army. Against the advice of his lieutenants, Sulla decides to dig in and engage, even though he's in difficult territory. 
Commanding that other army is none other than Gaius Marius' son, also named Gaius Marius. And Marius, even though he's barely 30 years old, was made consul for the year, far below the usual minimum age of around 40. The power brokers in Carbo's captive senate elected him more for his symbolic significance than his mastery of generalship, unfortunately. Marius Jr. was hoping to secure a quick victory with Sulla's army off balance. But Sulla's veterans stand firm and they push him back. And after a hard-fought battle, late into the evening, in a huge rout, they chase young Marius' army to the walls of Praeneste and they slaughter them as they go. Marius himself barely escapes capture. The citizens on the ramparts have to haul him up by a rope. And this battle ended up being one of the largest and most decisive ones of the war. Not only did Sulla end up killing between 15 and 20,000 men, according to our reports, but he now had a clear and unobstructed path to move on to the most important game piece of all, the city of Rome itself. He leaves a lieutenant in charge to lay siege to Praeneste and gets ready to move. Then another event occurred that underlines the desperation and brutality of those days. Around the time that news reached the city about the defeat, the hardliners in the city get a message, secretly, from Marius Jr. under siege. And one of the regime insiders, a guy named Brutus Damasippus, he's the urban praetor, the chief civic official, kind of like mayor for the year, he calls a meeting of the Senate. And when the old men are all in there, Damasippus moves his agents into place. They have a list of names young Marius sent him. And on that list are most of the prominent neutral senators remaining in the city, people of questionable loyalty, including some well-disposed to Sulla. And it's broad daylight in the very Senate house itself when a signal is given. And assassins rush in with daggers and they start murdering everyone on their list, some of the men they kill on the actual floor of the Senate. Others they catch and stab on the steps as they're trying to run away. And included on that list were great orators, former consuls, and the poor Quintus Mucius Scaevola, chief priest of the city, the Pontifex Maximus. His only crime was trying to be friends with both Sulla and Cinna's followers at the same time. Then Damasippus and the rest of the ringleaders escape the city a little before Sulla arrives with his army. And then, basically with no opposition, Sulla at last takes control of Rome after five years away. He stays outside the city walls, though, for some legal reasons that we'll discuss a little later. And this is a massive strategic win for him, there's no question. But there's little time for celebration because the war is far from over. Norbanus and Carbo are still in central Italy with big armies, and Marius Jr. is going to be very dangerous if he breaks that siege at Praeneste. As a matter of fact, if you reckon just by the scale of battles fought and the territory still contested, and especially if you compare the number of human casualties already taken against those that were still destined to happen, you might say that this was barely the midpoint of the war. After this, at Spoleto, Crassus slaughtered 3,000 regime troops, and then Sulla another 2,000 when he came to reinforce him. At Faventia, Metellus killed 10,000 of Carbo and Norbanus' men, 
and Lucullus more than 10,000 again at Fidentia. Pompey inflicted 20,000 casualties at Clusium, and that's only some of the major battles that came after the capture of Rome. And there were draws and reverses on either side, but the balance of victories kept stacking up in favor of Sulla, and there were more and more troop defections. In a big turning point after his loss to Metellus at Faventia, Norbanus gives up. He decides to flee to the island of Rhodes in Greece. Carbo presses on. He sends several legions to try to relieve Marius Jr. at Praeneste, and they fail too. After losing to Pompey at Fidentia, Carbo finally flees as well. He goes to the island of Sicily to try to regroup. The regime leaders are holding out hope for more armies in Africa and Spain and the East. The war in Italy, however, was starting to look all but settled. But suddenly, out of the blue, a familiar menace raises its ugly head to threaten not just Sulla, but Rome itself. 70,000 battle-hardened men have just entered the fight in a massive counter-assault aimed at tipping the scales back in the other direction. It's the Samnites. These are an extremely warlike coalition of tribes, fierce and independent men from the hills and highlands of south-central Italy. The Samnites have resented the Romans' ascendancy for more than two centuries. These people were the backbone of the Italian rebellion and the social war only ten years earlier, and they were humbled but not annihilated in the war. In order to shore up his regime after the coup, Cinna was making overtures to them. He was giving them a lot of autonomy, hoping to win them as allies for the storm he knew was coming. And it finally paid off. The Samnites now see a victory for Sulla as inevitable if they don't intervene. And a victory for Sulla would threaten their newly privileged status. And on top of that, Sulla was the Roman who was responsible for the highest tally of dead Samnites in the social war. It was Samnite rebels that he was besieging at Nola when he first ran for consul. His name, in particular, was famous and hated in Samnium. And so the Samnites mobilized this huge army of 70,000 commanded by Telesinus, the Samnite, and they've called in a major contingent of Lucanians from further south. The Lucanians also hate the Romans. The Lucanians are serving under their own man, Lamponius, but both of these generals are veterans from the social war, experienced at fighting Romans in particular. And this new army makes a blitz march on Rome itself. And in the outskirts of the city, they meet with another 10,000 that are left over from Carbo's regime army, commanded by several of his lieutenants. Sulla is now finishing up some operation in the north, and by the time he gets word, the situation is critical. He rushes to save Rome, but his two best commanders, Metellus and Pompey, are too far away, and they're engaged with other operations, and they can't make it in time. So it will just be Sulla and young Crassus with him against one of the largest and certainly the most deadly fighting force that he's ever had to face in his career. And here's how Plutarch describes it. Quote, Telesinus came within a little of breaking into the city in its unguarded state. Indeed, he was only ten stades away from the city, that's about a mile, when he bivouacked against it. 
highly encouraged and elated with hopes at the thought of having outgeneraled so many commanders. And when, at daybreak, the noblest youth of the city rode out against him, he overwhelmed many of them, including Appius Claudius, a man of high birth and character. There was a tumult in the city, naturally, and a shrieking of women, and a running hither and thither, as though the city were already taken by storm. End quote. And it's said that at this point, Telesinus stood in front of his soldiers and called out that the wolves that have preyed on Italy are about to be destroyed in their den. For the Samnites, capturing and sacking Rome itself would be the crowning achievement of their centuries-old military tradition, the eternal aspiration of their greatest leaders. But it was at this point that Sulla's cavalry showed up on the scene, and then the commander himself shortly after that. Sulla gathers his forces next to the walls of the city at the northeast corner by the entrance known as the Colline Gate. And two of Sulla's top lieutenants plead with him, let the troops rest after that long march. It's not the armies of Carbo and Marius they're up against after all, but Samnites and Lucanians, the most inveterate enemies of Rome and extremely warlike peoples. And Sulla thanks these men for their advice, and then he dismisses them, and he orders his troops into positions. There was no time to waste. He took out a golden amulet of Apollo from Delphi that he kept in his breast pocket, offered a prayer, kissed it, and sounded the trumpet to charge. It was around four in the afternoon. And the struggle that followed was the fiercest of the entire civil war. But as the day progressed into evening, Sulla's infantry on the left started to buckle. He rode up and down his lines, calling to heaven for the help of the gods, appealing to some of his men with entreaties, threatening others, and physically laying hands on others still. But at last, the left wing was shattered, and he retreated to his camp with the fugitives, after losing many of his best officers and friends and acquaintances. Crassus was nowhere to be seen. And some of those who came out from the city to watch the battle were trampled underfoot and killed. And all who were there saw now that the city was lost. And in the confusion, some people sent messengers to the commander besieging Marius at Prineste to tell him to come help with all speed since Sulla had fallen and Rome with him. But later in the night, messengers ride up from Crassus they demand to know when they can expect their dinner to be delivered. Crassus was commanding the right wing, but he hadn't fled. He scored a brilliant victory on his wing that carried him far from the battlefield as he chased the enemy all the way to Antemni, a fort a couple of miles away, and he pinned them in. And now, of course, they were hungry. And in fact, as reports trickle in, the picture is becoming clearer and clearer. Sulla had gotten the worst of it. But now the majority of the enemy's forces have been shattered. They've all either been killed or scattered or are now trapped in a siege by Crassus. They've won. Sulla has won. Rome has been saved, vindicated at last. It was 82 BC, and now Rome was under the firm control of one man, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. 
Sulla Felix, the fortunate. Another party of messengers was dispatched to Lucius Ophella, the man overseeing the siege of Marius's son at Prineste. They carried with them the heads of several of Carbo's lieutenants, as well as the head of Telesinus, the Samnite commander. These were raised on pikes in full view of the city gate. Marius looked out, along with the brother of Telesinus, who was joining him and holding the city. They understood what happened. The city officials did too, and they voted to surrender the city. Marius tried to escape with a few comrades through the city's sewer systems, but they found the exits guarded and realized their time was finally up. And they did what Romans considered the dignified thing and took their lives with their own hands. Now, Sulla's achievements up to this point had already changed the course of history, inspiring both admiration and terror. But he was remembered above all for what followed the Battle of the Colline Gate. His first act is to gather the Senate for a meeting in the Field of Mars. That's the training ground just outside the city walls of Rome. Sulla still doesn't want to enter the city yet, because, in fact, ever since leaving Rome five years ago, he's held the authority of a proconsul, a commander with consular authority. And according to Roman law, as soon as a proconsul enters the official city limits, marked by the city walls, he loses his proconsular authority, and thus his legal right to command Rome's armies. So, as if to emphasize his dutiful concern for upholding the Constitution, Sulla has the Senate come out to him. And they meet in the temple of Bellona, the goddess of war, fittingly. And that's right outside there in view of the walls. It's also within earshot of the Circus Flaminius, which is a large open-air arena right next door, used for sporting events, usually. And meanwhile, his officers have gathered into that arena next door 6,000 prisoners of war from the Battle of the Colline Gate, mostly Samnites, but some Romans too. Sulla begins to address the Senate. He starts delivering his official report on the victorious war with Mithridates. And at this very moment, his officers begin executing every single one of the prisoners. Sulla has to speak up over the screams and groans of dying men. And the senators are struck dumb and petrified by these horrific sounds. But Sulla, with the calm and unmoved countenance that he had begun talking with, he urges them to listen to his words and not concern themselves with what's going on outside. It's only some criminals being admonished on his orders. And this well-orchestrated scene gave the Roman leaders forebodings of the vengeance that was soon to fall upon the city. What happened next at Prineste was also ominous. Lucius Ophella, the man in charge of the siege, orders all the residents out onto the field in front of the city that had been harboring the young Marius for so long. Ophella separates the people out into Romans, citizens of Prineste, and Samnites, and he waits for orders from the proconsul. Sulla arrives and immediately orders all the Samnites executed. He selects a very few citizens of Prineste, 
who were useful to him in the past. And then he has the rest executed. One of the people he spared, it's said, was his generous host long ago when he was raising troops for the war with Jugurtha. But this man declined Sulla's mercy and chose to die alongside his countrymen. From out of the remaining Roman citizens, Sulla selects all those of high status, that is the senatorial and equestrian classes, then he has them executed. And then he addresses the rank-and-file troops with a long harangue about how every single one of them deserved death for their crimes, but then he pardons them. All the women and children were spared and let free. Now, all these that we've just described were acts of the harsh principles of wartime justice. What was remarkable about them was less that they happened, but that they happened so close to home. But the events that followed next were of a different kind. Sulla promulgates a list of men of Rome from out of the highest ranks, men who, even though they had every opportunity to abandon the wicked regime of Cinna and Carbo, had persisted in being his enemies in the civil war or had openly offered aid to his enemies. And the list began with the two senior former regime leaders, Carbo and Norbanus, and then it went on down the ranks to include praetors, quaestors, military tribunes, and more, 80 men. And in posting such a list, Sulla innovated for the first time a grim new tool for settling scores in civil wars. It was called proscription. Any man on that list was declared a public enemy. A bounty was put on his head, and his property was to be confiscated and used for state purposes. The usual way that someone could claim their reward was to bring Sulla the head of the proscribed man. The first day, there were 80, and then the next day, he claimed he remembered more and added another 220 names to the list. The third day, there were another 220 and also, anyone who was found harboring or protecting a proscribed man was to suffer the same punishment, no matter if they were brother, son, or parent. And Plutarch tells of husbands being butchered in the embraces of their wedded wives, sons in the arms of their mothers. And Plutarch wonders at this point, what happened to Sulla? Gaius Marius went on a spree of reprisals after he captured the city. But Marius, in Plutarch's view, was always a man of harsh and unbending nature. And gaining power hadn't changed his fundamental disposition, only intensified it. Sulla, however, from his youth, was a man of merry temper. A man, in fact, easily moved to tears of pity. Was he always a cold-blooded killer and beforehand just masking his true nature in order to ease his rise to power? And was he now just dropping all the pretenses? Or was it rather the old platitude that absolute power corrupts absolutely and Sulla was no match for the temptation to go to excess? Or was it a possibility that Plutarch doesn't consider that Sulla's path of vengeance was motivated by a sense of what you might call righteous indignation against men who had been complicit in abandoning a decorated patriot commander and his citizen army when they were overseas in the time of their greatest need, battling barbarians bent on destroying Rome? Was it anger against men who then chose to harbor and support the perpetrators, Cinna and his friends, when they refused to answer for these and other crimes? 
and whose obstinacy had therefore forced a civil war that, it's fair to say, was the worst calamity in Roman history, and the blood of it was on their hands. Well, whatever the true reason, the scale and intensity of Sulla's proscriptions made Cinna and Marius's purges look like a mere slap on their enemy's hands. Copies of the proscription lists are circulated and posted throughout Italy. Sulla's agents fan out. They're hunting down the proscribed men. And the lists keep growing as Sulla keeps remembering offenders. Or rather, he kept being reminded of names by his associates. Because there were many abuses during this time. Sulla's officers and allies and cronies took the opportunity to settle their own political scores throughout the land. And yet, the murders born of personal grudges paled in comparison to those motivated by pure, greedy opportunism. Because there was gain to be made in the bounty rewards, but even more gain in that Sulla was auctioning off the estates of the proscribed in order to raise quick cash for his depleted treasury. And he often set the price low, obscenely low, in order to gratify his friends who had advance notice and took massive advantage of the opportunity to buy cheap. Being rich became a mortal risk. One man, Quintus Aurelius, a quiet and inoffensive fellow whose only sin was to console the unfortunate, he walked into the forum one day and saw his name on the list and exclaimed, Alas, woe is me, my Alban estate has condemned me. And he didn't walk very far before he was struck down by a bounty hunter. One well-known case actually involved an ally and supporter of Sulla, the small-town man named Sextus Roscius from Ameria in Umbria. And he was visiting Rome one day and got murdered under suspicious circumstances. And someone brought word back to Ameria of what happened, and his enemies in town or his rivals saw an opportunity. They went to one of Sulla's right-hand men and made a deal to have Roscius retroactively proscribed after his death so that his property would get auctioned off instead of passing to his heirs. And Sulla's henchman bought the property for cheap. He paid 2,000 sesterces for an estate worth 6 million, and then he split it with Roscius's fellow townsmen who brought him the deal. And these crooked devils then framed Roscius's son and rightful heir for the murder in order to shut him up. A young Cicero then ended up defending the young man for that, and that speech he delivered still survives, and it's why we know about it. It was an ugly, terrifying time. The future rebel Catiline, who eventually went on to become one of Cicero's great nemeses, is said to have murdered his own brother during the Civil War, and he similarly approached Sulla later in order to have the brother proscribed retroactively to whitewash his crime. And it may be true that Sulla was, in fact, ignorant of many of the specific abuses. Young Crassus, the future richest man in Rome, was notorious for making a large part of his fortune early on buying these confiscated estates of the proscribed at huge discounts. But when Sulla found out that Crassus had allegedly had a man in southern Italy proscribed just in order to get his property, he condemned the action and he refused to ever have Crassus used on any public business again. And Sulla was not without mercy here and there. Maybe the most famous Sullen proscription was issued for the son-in-law of Cinna. 
Sulla was forcing people to dissolve even all marriage ties with the figureheads of the regime of Cinna. And so, for example, one man who married Cinna's poor widow was pressured to divorce her. But the young man who married Cinna's daughter, Cornelia, refused to leave her. The youth was proscribed, and he went into hiding, and the hunt got underway. But who was this bold 18-year-old with the gall to stand up to Sulla? It was the young Julius Caesar. And two of Sulla's prominent friends in the Senate intercede for Julius. Please, sir, he's just a boy. And after a lot of resistance, Sulla finally relents. And he's supposed to have replied, Very well, but you are fools if you do not see a great many Mariuses in that boy. Well, even if Sulla occasionally made attempts to curb abuses and sometimes pardon the guilty, he offended many people by his flippancy in overseeing the property confiscations. He would just give away estates to many of his low-class theater drinking buddies and sometimes on a whim. On one occasion, a very uninspired poet presented him with some verses in praise of his achievements, and Sulla made him a lavish gift of property from the proscriptions on condition that the man never write poetry again. And the ancient accounts vary, but the scale of the executions and the proscriptions, however you counted it up, it was truly staggering. It was over a thousand men. But what made it so memorable and disruptive was that these were almost without exception from among the richest and most powerful men in Rome. Men with sprawling estates, retinues of hundreds of slaves, with centuries-old patronage structures and empire-wide business operations. Sulla eliminated many of the densest nodes in the Roman network of power and finance. It was a vast purge. And Sulla, I guess, felt it was a necessary setting of things aright. But you know, he didn't want to be remembered as a butcher. He wanted this to be seen in retrospect as merely a clearing away, a first step, a leveling of the foundation in order to allow for the building of a new, restored, stronger republic. Could he pull it off? Well, if he was going to have any chance at creating a bright new Roman future, he needed a different kind of legal authority. And so he looked to the past. The Romans had an ancient office that by now had been defunct for more than 120 years. In order to streamline the chain of command and allow extraordinary responses to extremely difficult situations, such as the war with Hannibal, the Romans would occasionally grant their most capable commander extraordinary powers for a six-month period. This man would be given the title of dictator. And so after a number of weeks of the murderous reign of terror we just described, as the blood was finally washed off the paved stones of Rome, Sulla, as proconsul, sends a letter to the head of the Senate from his residence outside the walls. And he suggests that, considering the circumstances, the state was in need again of a dictator. Not, this time, to unite command of the armies, but rather a new kind of dictator. Dictator in charge of making laws and settling the Constitution. It was loopholes in the Constitution that were in fact largely responsible for getting them into this mess. For this extraordinary office of dictator for constitutional revision... Sulla humbly offers himself as a candidate. And unlike all the previous dictators of the past, it made no sense to give this dictator a specific term limit 
but rather he should be allowed to keep the office until the job was finished. When the Senate allowed a measure to be put to the vote of the Roman people, and the people voted, and Sulla was thus elected dictator. It's worth noting the fine print of the act, which also granted him legal immunity for all his past actions, and for his term as dictator, supreme power of life and death, and of confiscating property, and of establishing colonies, of founding or demolishing cities, and of taking away and bestowing client kingships at his pleasure. And it's understandable that a Greek like Plutarch would think, well, Sulla has now basically made himself the tyrant of Rome. But then, don't you think that if he was going to write a ship this size that was this far off course, he was going to need a pretty big rudder? Well, the first step in establishing his legacy with this new office of supreme power securely in hand was to finally arrange for his triumphal entry into the city, according to the elaborate rituals that the Romans staged for returning victorious generals. This triumphal parade was, of course, not in any way about the recent bloody victory over Roman citizens. He wanted to help people forget all that unpleasant business. So the focus was entirely on Mithridates, and the citizens were treated to an exotic spectacle of the great treasures of armor and jewels that he and the Romans captured in their victories against Mithridates. And following behind the conqueror's parade chariot, there were all the senators— those still left alive, that is, wearing their celebratory laurel wreaths. And many of them chanted, Sulla the Father, Sulla the Savior, as they walked. Especially those prominent men who spent the last few years in exile with him, returning now at last with their wives and children. Someone might even say it was a feel-good event. With the confetti and the festoons still decking the streets, Sulla calls a great public assembly of the Romans, a cantio, and he gives an account before the populace of all his actions, why they were justified, and why they proved that better days were ahead for Rome now. Because she was in good hands. If the past years of struggle proved anything, it was that Sulla himself was favored by fortune. And so the gods would prosper Rome too, surely, as the work of his hands. In recognition of this reality, his official name to be read on inscriptions and documents and hereafter used in all public proclamations was Lucius Cornelius Sulla Felix. Felix, the fortunate, the lucky. But he had also come to a more specific understanding of the particular god that favored him. And in his correspondence with the Greeks and in his Greek inscriptions in the East hereafter, Instead of Felix, or even the strict Greek translation of the word, which would be case, he preferred the Greek epithet Epaphroditus, Epaphroditos, the favorite of Aphrodite, the favorite of Venus, goddess of love and luck and founding goddess of the Roman people. To enact his vision for a restored Rome, then, the first item to tackle on his agenda as dictator was the office of Tribune of the Plebs. This was the office abused by Sulpicius and Marius, and before them, Saturninus and Glaucia, and before them, the great architects of the radical tribunate, 
the Gracchi brothers. And Sulla was just old enough to have possibly seen the Gracchi around town when he was a little kid. With its ability to veto consuls and call plebiscite assemblies and vote laws into effect without reference to the Senate or the magistrates, the tribunate had become a tool of tyrannical demagoguery. Ambitious men would use it to cynically channel the mob's anger and win themselves career credentials and autocratic power. Sulla made it a rule that no tribunes could hereafter pass any laws. The right of the plebiscite assemblies to legislate was formally abolished. From now on, only the higher magistrates, with the cooperation of the Senate, would be able to submit laws to a citizen vote. But the assembly that would vote would be one that allotted proper weight to the votes of men of wealth and status. That voting assembly was called the Centuriate Assembly. And moreover, any man who held the office of Tribune of the People would be ineligible for higher offices for the rest of his life. This ought to limit the Tribunate to the least talented and least ambitious men in the city. Tribunes still had some powers, like the authority to intercede with their veto on behalf of individual Romans against arbitrary abuses by consuls and praetors, But the combined effect of Sulla's laws was to make the office almost irrelevant in real politics. And so, as Sulla believed at least, he solved that problem once and for all. Well, next up, the Senate's usual roll call of 300 members had faced in recent years, let us say, an unusually high rate of vacancies— there were around 125 spots to be filled, almost half its members. So Sulla added many of his worthy supporters to the rolls, and then he doubled its size. And he took many other measures. Many were aimed at turning the clock back a generation or two. For example, he returned control of the courts to the Senate. You see, the courts had been controlled by the equestrians for almost 50 years, since the days of the Gracchi, And this led to abuses. While the senators were the richest men, the equestrians were the actual practitioners of big business in Rome. They were the moneylenders, the tax farmers, and any senatorial official, say a governor, who tried to thwart them by holding them accountable for their abuses in the provinces, was likely to get prosecuted by a hostile equestrian jury when he got home. If you could blame any people in Rome for the war with Mithridates, it was the equestrians using the courts to shield their corruption. So Sulla fixed that. And in his old age, he even came to see the wisdom of Rome's noble tradition of sumptuary laws, that is, caps on frivolous private expenditures. He could already see public morals declining, as happens so often in times of civil war and revolution. He set up laws to curb sports gambling, and he imposed strict limits on how much money you could spend on a meal, And he also regulated funeral budgets and tombstone splurges. This was how the dictator aimed to benevolently guide the culture back toward that pristine, frugal virtue of the greater days of the Roman Republic. And in this spirit, he also undertook a massive building campaign to restore, above all, the temples of the gods throughout the city, which had fallen into disrepair, and most of all, the great holy complex on the Capitoline Hill that recently burned down. The new Rome he was building was going to evoke the ancient spirit more vividly than ever. 
But when his poor wife, Metella, died, he felt it was only right to make an exception here to his sumptuary laws, and he gave her a lavish, exorbitant funeral. And he also thought, given the great grief that he was experiencing at her death, that an exception was in order for himself, too, personally. So he spent the days after her passing in expensive, extravagant parties, drinking heavily and trading raunchy jokes with his actor and dancer friends. A celebration of Metella's life, you might say. Other of his actions seemed to many to be abuses of his power and authority. When he saw that Pompey was already rising to become the foremost man of his generation, Sulla ordered the young man to divorce his wife and marry Metella's daughter, Sulla's own stepdaughter, who also had to divorce her own husband first. And she was already pregnant, though. But the girl, Amelia, died in childbirth shortly afterwards at the house of Pompey. And what happened to Ophella shocked everyone. Ophella was the man who oversaw the siege of young Marius at Prineste. And this Ophella, by the way, was actually a former Cinna supporter who came over to Sulla early in the war. Well, Ophella wanted to run for consul, but a new law of Sulla stipulated that you had to hold certain junior offices first before you ran for senior offices. This was custom before, but not law. Well, Ophella hadn't held the necessary office of quaestor, but he thought he deserved a shot anyway at the consulship. Ophella makes his request to the dictator for an exception, but Sulla refuses. Then, however, the man posted himself as a candidate anyway. One day, he's strolling around in the forum, greeting his campaign supporters, and as Sulla watches from the Temple of Castor, which overlooks the forum, one of his centurions walks right up and stabs Ophella dead. The bystanders seize the centurion and drag him before Sulla, but Sulla tells them to calm down and cease their clamor because he himself ordered the deed, and he tells them to let the man go. Well, I guess how's the dictator supposed to give people confidence in the force of his laws if he allows a man like that to casually break them? And other measures that he took, well, he could claim that they were aimed at stabilizing the state that he founded. The one that caused the most offense was that after the proscriptions, when he took away all that property from the men that had been slain, he also took away the civil rights of their sons and grandsons. No offices, no honors, not even the right to vote. The thought, at least, was that this would keep those resentful children from one day rising up and toppling the order he established. But it seemed so harsh. And the most powerful stabilizing force, though, for the new Sulla constitution, was going to be his veterans, these he settles on colonies throughout Italy, and to do this he gives his loyal soldiers generous grants of land out of the properties he confiscated during the proscriptions and also out of large tracts of public land that he confiscated from towns and cities who sided with his enemies during the Civil War. This left a permanent reserve military force in some of the most strategic strong points of Italy. They could be called up on a moment's notice if any trouble threatened his regime. And even though he long sided with the conservative party, Sulla was never one to begrudge citizenship to deserving men. 
And so, out of the many slaves who were confiscated as property in the estates of his dead enemies, he selected 10,000 of them and gave them their freedom, as well as Roman citizenship. It was a Roman tradition that a freed slave would take the family name of his master who liberated him. And so now, Sulla could count on the support of 10,000 Corneliuses in any future election or civic affair that related to his causes. Well, was all this enough to set Rome on a straight course for the future? Sulla seemed to think so. Because at this point, barely more than a year after assuming the dictatorship, he did something nobody expected. Here's Plutarch. And to such an extent did he put more confidence in his good fortunes than in his accomplishments, that although he had slain great numbers of the citizens and introduced great innovations and changes in the government of the city, he laid down his office of dictator and put the consular elections in the hands of the people. And when they were held, he did not go near them himself, but walked up and down the forum like a private man, exposing his person freely to all who wished to call him to account. End quote. No bodyguards, no lictors, just a man. The same man who, from the beginning of his life in public on the campaign against Jugurtha, had resolved to cede no ground to fear because he trusted in the will of the gods. Now, he did in fact run for consul a second time that year, and he was elected alongside his friend Quintus Metellus Pius, so he left the dictator's office with a pretty sturdy parachute. And the following year, 79, it was two loyal lieutenants of his that were elected to the office of consul, no surprise. But in the elections for 78 BC, one of the consuls elected was actually an outspoken opponent of Sulla, Marcus Lepidus. Sulla, in fact, campaigned against him, and he had stern words for the young Pompey who was helping Lepidus's campaign. Sulla thought Lepidus was bad for Rome, but he allowed the elections to go on without interfering all the same. What better way to show that the days of terror were long over and that Rome was a free city once again? And Sulla certainly spent his final days at Rome as a very free man. At least that's the tone of one version of his death that Plutarch offers, because very much as in the case with Sulla's great nemesis, the elder Gaius Marius, there are several very different accounts of Sulla's death, which occurred later that very year. And maybe this is another reminder of our natural human inclination to see the true moral worth of a person and the summation of the meaning of their life in the particular manner that they leave it. The story Plutarch prefers goes like this. Quote, However, even though he had a wife at home, oh yeah, Sulla remarried once again, number five, he consorted with actresses, harpists, and theatrical people, drinking with them on couches all day long. For the men who had the most influence with him were now these, Roscius the comedian, Sorex the archmime, and Metrobius the impersonator of women, for whom, though the man was past his prime, Sulla continued up to the last days to be passionately fond and to make no denial of it. By this mode of life, he aggravated a disease which was insignificant in its beginnings, and for a long time he knew not that his bowels were ulcerated. This disease corrupted his whole flesh also, 
and converted it into worms, so that although there were many employed day and night in removing them, what they took away was as nothing compared with the increase upon him. But all his clothing, baths, hand basins, and food were infected with that flux of corruption, so violent was its discharge. Therefore he immersed himself many times a day in water to cleanse and scour his person. But it was of no use, for the change gained upon him rapidly, and the swarm of vermin defied all purification. End quote. And I think that story makes clear Plutarch's final judgment on Sulla. And as he has it, the final blow supposedly came when he flew into a rage at the insubordination of some social inferior, and he burst a blood vessel while shouting at his thugs to strangle the man. But this idea of being eaten alive by maggots actually comes up in a lot of ancient stories of the ends of villainous tyrants, and it makes you suspect that the whole death story that we have in Plutarch may be just a cobbling together of literary tropes put together by one of the hostile writers Plutarch used as a source, and there were no shortage of those after Sulla died. Because in Appian, another very reliable source on Sulla, there's no trace of flesh-eating worms. Sulla simply died of a fever, and a very fast one that lasted only a day. The sources do agree, however, that he kept working right up to the end. For example, ten days before he died, he reconciled two political factions and drafted a set of laws for the city of Puteoli in southern Italy. That was a place near the villa that he retired to in his later years. And at that villa, near the oracle of Cumai on the Bay of Naples, that was where he composed his memoirs. They're lost now, but they're one of the reasons that we know so much about his campaigns. And there was an entry in that book of memoirs only two days before he died. He wrote on that day that long ago, some Chaldean soothsayers foretold to him that after an honorable life, he was to end his days at the height of his good fortunes. And he went on in that entry to tell of a dream he just had that affected him deeply. In it, his little son appeared to him, his son who had died as a boy only a short while before Metella. And his son stood in front of him, clothed in humble attire, as though he had just come in from playing out in the fields on a lazy summer day. And the child spoke to him comfortingly. He asked his father to put an end to his many cares and anxious thoughts and come with him to his mother Metella and live there in a restful peace with her. Sulla told his friends about the dream and composed his will in haste. Within a day or two, a fever caught him, and he died during the night. Unfortunately, Sulla's death was not the end of Rome's troubles by any stretch, because the civil war was starting to flare up again into a true crisis in Spain, as the rogue general Sertorius held out stoutly against Metellus Pius and built up what was starting to look like a rival state in the West. And even in Rome itself, as soon as Sulla dies, a fight breaks out immediately over his burial. Many leaders propose to arrange a funeral procession to carry him from his villa to Rome, 
and there to hold a great public ceremony? The consul Lepidus and his followers opposed this forcefully. But the other consul and many of Sulla's associates clamor out against Lepidus. And Pompey does too, even though he and Sulla had a falling out before the man's death, and Sulla left him out of his will, alone among all his friends. So there was a grand funeral procession, the great Sulla carried in royal splendor through the gentle coastal hills of Latium, along the Via Appia, accompanied by trumpets and horsemen and a great crowd of his soldiers in their full armor. And the ceremony at Rome was celebrated with more lavish opulence than anyone had ever heard of. At his tomb, they burned a great effigy of the dictator, molded out of costly frankincense and cinnamon. And they placed his tomb in the field of Mars, and on it was an inscription that he composed himself. Here lies Sulla, whom no friend ever surpassed in doing kindnesses, nor any enemy in doing mischief. Thanks for listening. More on Sulla in the next episode, where we discuss his legacy and consider some things we can take into the trials we face in our own lives. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review. It really helps us out. And sign up for our email list at ancientlifecoach.com. Stay strong, stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time. <laughs>